Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have called us. We are your people. We hear your voice, the voice of the great shepherd who bids us to come and to follow him, to commit our lives to him because he has laid down his life for us. Father, thank you that we can even call you Father and have access into this grace in which we stand, that we can come before you as into the throne room of heaven, not on our own merit, but on the merit of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, we recognize when we pray that we are praying to the God of heaven and earth, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who is and who was and who is to come in whose hand all of history is. And Father, we know that you are orchestrating all things after the counsel of your own will, and you are bringing all of history to a consummation, to a close, where your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, will return, and every eye will see him, and every knee will bow in heaven and on earth under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Father, we confess our weakness. We confess that in and of ourselves, we have no strength. We cannot do any spiritual good. We cannot please you apart from the faith that you have given us. Father, thank you that you have stirred our hearts. You have given us new hearts. You've taken out the heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh. You've done a heart surgery that only you can do that we might love you and that we might love each other, that we might be image bearers of the great God of heaven in the earth. Father, help us. We know that your strength is perfected in our weakness. Lord, we don't desire to boast in ourselves, but to boast in you. Father, glorify yourself through your people. Keep your people by your word that they would endure to the end. For this is your promise. You will keep your own people to the end. Lord, we want to pray this morning for um, all who are uh, in authority over us in this country. We pray for our president. We pray for uh, our vice president. We pray for all in authority. Father, turn the hearts of the wicked to you. Save them, Lord. The soul is what matters. It it lasts for eternity. 
This life is rapidly passing away, but eternal life abides forever. Father, have mercy and turn them that they might serve you, the one and true living God, and desire to live in a way that accords with godliness. Father, help us all to be model citizens, Christians, those who submit because we submit to you. You are our Lord and our Savior. Father, this morning we pray that you would give us courage, give us wisdom, give us understanding in your word. Lord, I need your help. And I thank you for these brothers and sisters. Thank you for the joy of fellowship that we have in Christ. Thank you for the family of God that we are all called sons, inheritors of you and of eternal life. Praise you and thank you and ask for your blessing now. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, as you probably uh, gather from the reading this morning, we are embarking in a new study on the book of Romans. Uh, This is a letter that is considered by many to be Paul's magnum opus, his greatest work, because of the richness and the comprehensiveness of the doctrine that it contains, all centering on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason I was drawn to start preaching through this book is really uh, just that. One, it is solid food and drink for all Christians to partake of and to enjoy for the whole church of Jesus Christ. This is a feast, loved ones, and the Lord calls us to enjoy it. It's also a book, to be honest, that I've been wrestling with uh, for some time and have had... um, Uh, wrestling with a number of the chapters. I mean, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11. There's a lot in there that is challenging. (laughs) But I know that it is a book that the Lord has used instrumentally in the lives of his people and in the conversion of some of the great church fathers that we know, like St. Augustine and Martin Luther and has had a profound impact on the lives of John Calvin and Jonathan Edwards and John Wesley and undoubtedly on countless men and women in the church since it was written. Perhaps some of you have been converted through the words of the book of Romans. I don't know how true this is, but apparently uh, I've been told some pastors wait 10 to 20 years before um, even considering attempting preaching through the book of Romans because uh, it is so comprehensive and so challenging. But I don't think we need to wait that long. I know that God has richly blessed those who have devoted themselves to the study of this book, and so that is my prayer for all of us. I think it's a message that we all need to hear. And so let us pray together that the Lord gives us all great wisdom and great understanding as we attempt to plumb the depths of this book that we might hear, that we might understand, that we might obey its contents, and that each one of us should be transformed by it. By way of background, I thought it would be helpful just to provide a little context. So this letter was written by the Apostle Paul. He's the author. You see, he starts Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. 
And it was written to the saints in Rome around the year uh, 56 AD is the best estimate that we have. And the circumstances are, as you know, Paul took three missionary journeys through the ancient world. And this letter was written near the end of his third missionary journey um, when he was in Corinth. And he was on his way back to Jerusalem with an offering for the poor saints there that he had taken up from the saints in the churches of Achaia and Macedonia, which would be southern, the southern and northern provinces, Roman provinces of Greece, modern-day Greece. And so uh, we know that Paul is writing from Corinth because in Romans he references uh, Phoebe, Gaius, and Erastus, who were all associated with Corinth. And the purpose of the letter, well, unlike some of other, uh, Paul's other letters, uh, the purpose of this letter was actually not to correct bad theology in the church um, or ungodly living at the Church of Rome. The church actually seems to have been pretty doctrinally sound, but they needed to be taught the great truths of the gospel of grace so that they would be established in the faith. And I think that applies to us too. Romans is on the one hand theologically quite simple, and the youngest person can grasp its truth yet it's profound enough for the greatest of theologians to wrestle with its contents for a lifetime. The big theme of this book is summed up in the latter portion of Romans 1.17, where Paul says, The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. And what that faith points to is the Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son. In other words, those who believe the truth of God's good news concerning His Son, Jesus Christ, are declared righteous, are justified before God. That's what he means when he says, the just, and the just shall live by faith. Not as a one-time act of faith, I believed at some point in the past, and therefore I am justified, but as a pattern of life, as a constant exercise of faith, a continual believing in the gospel of grace all the way to the end. The just shall live by faith. It will define their lives. And so there we have it. That is the key, really, that unlocks this whole letter to the Romans. The just shall live by faith. Before we dive into the text itself, I want to give you a 30,000-foot panorama, if you will, of the overarching structure of this letter, because I think it's very helpful. Uh, There are times when we go through the book of Romans that we will feel like we are deep in the brush. We are in the woods. We are um, in a lot of wonderful detail, and it's hard to see where we came from. So it's good, I think, to establish this panorama so that as we go through it, we can reference back. We can zoom out and zoom in, if you will, and understand how the, the apostle is carrying us along through this letter. So in terms of structure, there are 16 chapters in the book of Romans, and the first 11 are devoted to doctrine. That's teaching. The last five are devoted to practice. That's the living out of what's been taught in the first 11 chapters. And you find that that really is the pattern of the New Testament epistles. You have doctrine first that informs the life, how we ought to live, what we have been taught. So first, the doctrine. The letter begins with Paul identifying the way of salvation, how anyone is saved. And the answer he provides is, we are justified by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. 
For those of you who are familiar with the five solas of the Reformation, that language of alone, alone probably sounds very familiar. In fact, as we go, we're going to see all five of these solas, which have just been identified by Christians from the scriptures in the book of Romans. It's full of them. Sola gratia, by grace alone. Sola fide, through faith alone. Solus Christus, in Christ alone. Sola Scriptura, according to the Holy Scriptures alone. And Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. And so Paul works out that the, the way of salvation must be this way. It must. By grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. Why? Because God's wrath, His righteous anger abides on all mankind. Because all men are sinners. That is, those who have violated, those who have broken God's holy law, they are haters of God. They are those who refuse to glorify Him, who have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they like it that way. This is no accident. They're not just, no, I didn't know, Lord. They like the lie. They prefer it that way. That's a picture of all of us apart from Christ. And therefore, we all stand condemned. We are unrighteous and condemned by the Lord. That's our starting position when we come into this world. Because of this fundamental truth of the doctrine of sin, man cannot save himself by his own efforts. And if there is to be any hope of salvation at all for man, God has to be the one to initiate salvation, to rescue fallen man. So he starts with the Gentiles, the nations of the earth. That's what Gentile means, nations. He starts with them, all the non-Jews, those who have not received the direct revelation of the word of God. And he shows that they cannot earn salvation. They can't make themselves right with God because they are in darkness. Their minds have been corrupted. They're non-functioning. Their minds are non-functioning. And they are willfully unrighteous and ungodly. That's chapter 1. Then he moves on to the Jews, those who outwardly are very religious, who have the form of godliness, but they lack the inner life. And he shows that they also cannot earn God's salvation by their own efforts to keep God's law. And so he concludes all under sin, both the Jew and the Gentile. That's chapter 2 and the first 20 verses of chapter 3. From the 21st verse of chapter 3 to the end of chapter 3, Paul shows that the righteousness of God has always been given through faith and that human boasting is therefore excluded, not part of the equation. Why? Because God's righteousness through faith is a free gift of his grace, which means undeserved favor, the undeserved favor of God. No one can earn it, not the Gentiles, not even the Jews who have many advantages over the Gentiles. Paul then supports his contention that God has always dealt with man and blessed him by faith by looking at two patriarchs in the Old Testament, the examples of Abraham and David. That's chapter 4. And then from chapters 5 through 8, he deals with the security of the Christian. So he starts with the way of salvation, the just shall live by faith, and he moves now to the security of the Christian. In chapter 5, we're told that we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord and are absolutely secure 
because we are no longer united to Adam, but we're united to Christ. And that this union that he's brought us into is God's own work. Hence, we're secure. Chapters 6 and 7, Paul addresses the sanctification of the believer. After we've been justified and declared righteous, God sanctifies us. That is, he produces real holiness of life in us. And he deals with arguments and objections to his teaching about the gospel of grace. So, for example, in chapter 6, he addresses the question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, it's as if his opponents are saying, so, Paul, if keeping the law can't save you, and grace reigns, grace is what's abounding, you're living under grace, not under the law, then why not just live lawlessly? In other words, keep sinning so that God would pour out more grace. Or let us do evil that good may come. And Paul says, God forbid. That's a misunderstanding of grace. That argument is called antinomianism. So that's chapter 6. Chapter 7 addresses questions about the law as it relates to faith in Christ. So if keeping the law can't save you, Paul, then what is the function of the law exactly? Is the law bad? Is the law good? And what's the Christian's relationship to it? Those are the questions that he addresses in chapter 7. In chapter 8, he focuses on how Christ works in us mightily through his Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit. And he shows that Christ himself sanctifies us through his Holy Spirit and then moves to the doctrine of the glorification of the believer. So we are secure in Christ. He is working to produce holiness of life in us, and he will glorify us ultimately. Chapters 9 through 11 deals with the people who receive God's salvation. Chapter 9 is all about the election of grace. It's a chapter a lot of people have a hard time with when we talk about the word election. But you know what? It is all over Scripture and all throughout Scripture, so we can't ignore it, and we should embrace it. It is about the doctrine of election. God has not changed at all. Paul is going to show that from the beginning, he has always had a remnant of grace. He's always had a chosen seed. He's always had children of promise. Abel, not Cain. Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau. He chose Israel, and he passed by the other nations of the earth, didn't he? And God still has a chosen people among the Jews, but it also includes Gentiles. The great mystery revealed that was hidden previously from ages past. The one new man, the church, comprised of Jews and Gentiles, people from all nations, because the Lord will have his inheritance from the whole earth, all nations. So that's the doctrine of the first 11 chapters of Romans. Start with the way of salvation, grace through faith in Christ alone. We move from that to the security of the believer, that the Lord will sanctify and glorify his people because it is he himself who is doing this work. And then he talks about the election of grace, the people who receive God's salvation. In chapters 12 to 16, we now get to the practice, the practical outworking of the doctrine of the first 11 chapters. Chapter 12 is really a general exhortation for all Christians. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, 
acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And he goes on to consider the purpose of spiritual gifts in the church. And he urges the saints to use their gifts to serve the Lord. Chapter 13 is how we are to live as model citizens in society by submitting to the government that God himself has ordained, even ungodly government. Chapter 14 and the first half of 15 is how we are to behave toward other Christians in the church and toward outsiders in the world. And from the second half of chapter 15 to the very end, the end of chapter 16, Paul gives a number of personal remarks and really intimate expressions of his love for the saints. So he greets them by name. Well, with that as our introduction, I invite us to jump into the text together. So if you have a Bible, Romans chapter 1, verse 1. And uh, I know I read the first seven verses, but I think we might only get through the first part of the first verse this morning. Paul, the bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. So Paul, a bondservant. Now, many translations say servant, and honestly, they do not do justice to the text. Bondservant's closer. The actual word in Greek, doulos means slave. Uh, In Rome at the time of Paul's writing, there were an estimated one million people total in Rome. Uh, And some probably 30 to 40 percent of that million, so three to four hundred thousand, were slaves. So that term was well understood. In fact, many of the people that he was writing to were probably slaves. What is a slave? Well, In contrast to servants who were hired help, who could come and go as they pleased, slaves were purchased. Slaves were owned completely by their master. And that's the word that Paul is using here. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 8, we get a very interesting insight into the Jewish mind toward slavery. Particularly from the Pharisees, who were the religious elites. They were the... uh, the ultra-conservatives, the orthodox of Judaism, they were the teachers of Israel. The word Pharisee means separate. They are the separate ones, and they thought themselves as elevated, not like the common people, the low people. And so Jesus speaking with the Pharisees in verse 31 of John chapter 8, we read, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? You can just hear the disdain, right, in their voice, in their response. They were repulsed at this idea that they needed to be made free. Never in bondage to anyone? What about Egypt? 400 years of bondage. 722 B.C., the Assyrians came and carried away the northern kingdom, Israel, into captivity. In 586 B.C., you have Babylon who swept in and took Judah, the southern kingdom, carried them away to captivity. Later, the Greeks 
And at the time of Paul's writing, the Romans were in control. They had conquered the world, right? So they certainly had been in bondage. But they viewed themselves as absolutely free on the basis of their pedigree, their connection with Abraham. Because they said they are the sons of Abraham. They felt that they were the chosen seed of Abraham, free, never in bondage to any man. And what does Jesus answer them? He says, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Make no mistake, he who habitually sins, whose life is marked by a practice of sin, is enslaved to sin. They obey sin. Sin is their master, effectively, and they obey it. So Jesus is saying, you Pharisees are just serving your master, taskmaster's sin. That's their real problem. And frankly, loved ones, it's our problem too, apart from Christ. Jesus puts his finger right on it. He's not talking about physical slavery. He's talking about spiritual bondage. They are in bondage to sin, and they prove it because the practice of their lives is to commit sin. In fact, as Jesus is speaking, they have hatred welling up in their hearts for him and are planning to murder him. And Jesus calls that out. You want to kill me, a man who has spoken the truth to you. But my word has no place in you. And he tells them they are of their father, the devil, not a way to make friends and influence people. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father is what you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks, he speaks a lie. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. A murderer, a liar. And they, as his sons, are acting just like their father. That's the concept of a son in Scripture. A son does what the father does. They're acting just like their father, the devil. They want to murder him because there is no place for the truth in them. They are in darkness and in bondage to it. If they were Abraham's children, they would do the works of Abraham, Jesus says. And what are the works of Abraham? Faith in God's word. Faith in his promise of Messiah to come. Belief of the truth, loved ones. That's what we're talking about. Truth and error. Do you believe the word of God when it's spoken, or do you doubt? They have no love for Christ. These Pharisees only rejection, hate, and murder because they are slaves to sin. And Paul, who is writing this epistle to Romans, is also a Pharisee. He was, when he was called Saul of Tarsus. You remember how in Philippians chapter 3, he talks about the great confidence that he had in his flesh before his encounter with the living Christ? Far from being a slave or one who was in bondage, he saw himself as the consummate Jew. And he was proud. He boasted in his accomplishments. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, 
of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. He did not see himself in bondage to anyone. In fact, he was a persecutor of Christians, and he was both murdering them and taking them prisoner to Jerusalem to be punished until the Lord Jesus Christ arrests him on the road to Damascus, right? You remember the encounter? Paul or Saul and his entourage are on their way to Damascus. It's the middle of the day. It's noon. The sun in that part of the world in the middle of the day is incredibly blinding. And what happens? The Lord causes a great light, even brighter than the sun shining at that noonday, to eclipse the sun, and Paul is blinded and thrown to the ground. He falls to the ground, and he hears a voice, and the voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And then he said, the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. In other words, Saul, when you persecute these Christians... You're not persecuting them. You're actually directing your murder and your hate to me. Just like the Pharisees in John 8 who wanted to murder Jesus when they heard the truth. So Saul was a slave to sin and to the devil and to the bondage of trying to earn his own righteousness by keeping the law, which is called legalism. And he needed to know the truth that Jesus is Lord. Lord meaning the sovereign God. Adonai in the Old Testament. Lord in the New. The sovereign God of heaven and earth. And Jesus revealed it to him on that road. And graciously, the Lord did set him free. In fact, we're told in Acts chapter 9 that after his sight was restored by Ananias, who was likely, who was likely one of the Damascus church leaders that... Saul was going to persecute. Paul, Saul was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was baptized and he remained with the disciples in Damascus for a couple of days. And then we're told in Acts 9, immediately he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Immediately. It's a remarkable transformation, right? From persecuting Christ to preaching Christ. Now, not all of us have that dramatic Damascus Road conversion experience like Paul did, but we are all transformed from being slaves of sin to slaves of righteousness. How? By believing that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. And that should evidence itself in our lives, right? Paul, Paul's transformed life was evident throughout his writings in Scripture. I mean, to the Corinthian church, he said, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul was laser-focused on Christ, and his primary concern was to love him, to know him as his new master. And to the churches in Galatia, he said, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He who formerly boasted in himself now only boasts in the Lord and in his cross. 
After that uh, laundry list of personal achievements that uh, Paul stated about himself in Philippians 3, Paul says, starting in verse 7, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul gladly traded all his self-worth, all the things he boasted in while he was still a slave to sin, things which he calls garbage, literally refuse, in exchange for the knowledge of his Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. And he was even willing to suffer for him. Paul, a bondservant, a slave of Jesus Christ. Later in this epistle to the Romans, Paul makes the same argument that his Lord made to the Pharisees in John 8 regarding slavery to sin. Paul makes the same argument. Listen to how he puts it in Romans chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Not only is Paul a slave of Jesus Christ, but he says, you saints in Rome were in the same boat, slaves to sin. But God be thanked, you have been set free. How? He answers this he answers it in the, in the passage we just read. You obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Now, very interesting word that's used in the Greek here for form. Form means a pattern. It means a mold, a dye. So the idea is uh, a metal worker would use this mold to pour metal forms. And so he's saying, you have been poured into the mold of God's truth and you have embraced it. You've believed it from the heart. It's just another way of saying that we are freed from slavery to sin by believing the truth. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, who is the righteous one. Being a slave to Christ, loved ones, is really a badge of honor. Why? Because the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, true freedom. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Listen, friends, the yoke of taskmaster's sin is hard. It's heavy, but the yoke of the Lord Jesus is easy and light. Loved ones, it is a privilege to serve the Lord, is it not? Serving the Lord is not a burden. Psalm 100, 
Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. The Lord is the joy of his people because he is good. And we know his mercy toward us in Christ. We all in Christ know experientially what it is to be freed from bondage to sin. Sin is no longer your taskmaster, no longer has dominion over you. You are no longer required, (laughs) compulsed, uh, can only, can do nothing but sin. You now can choose righteousness and walk in the spirit and not according to the flesh. Is that true of you, my friend? Have you embraced Jesus Christ, not just as your Savior, but as your Lord? Getting back to this theme of slave. And Lord, not just over part of your life, but Lord over all of your life. Or are there still areas of your life that are like closed doors in a great house? Rooms where the Lord is not allowed access. We are not our own anymore, loved ones. We are bought with a price, the scripture says. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Our hymn this morning, O great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Own it all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war. You have loved and purchased me. Make me yours forevermore. So Paul, who is now gladly a slave of Christ, working only to do his will, to please his master, tells us next that he was called to be an apostle. Paul, bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. Paul didn't make himself an apostle. He was called. And the sense of that word for call is to be invited. To be invited as to a feast, in fact. Or to be appointed by God. In other words, the honor was conferred upon him. And it's the same word that we see in verse 6, where Paul says, among whom also you are the called of Jesus Christ. And in verse 7, where Paul says, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. We are the called of God. Those who are invited to dine with Jesus Christ at his banquet table and appointed to be his saints. Nobody takes this honor upon himself, right? He must be called. Paul here says that he is called to be an apostle. And this word for apostle simply means sent one. One who is sent. And sometimes people will use the word disciple interchangeably with the word apostle. That's a mistake, though. That's that's not correct. 
Disciple means a learner. It means a student, one who follows the Lord. Apostle means one who is sent out by Christ. In the New Testament scriptures, we see that we have 12 apostles who were appointed, right? But there's far more disciples. Remember the, uh, the 70 who were sent out by the Lord? They were disciples. And we know that not all disciples were true disciples, right? I mean, the Lord said earlier, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. It's not just an intellectual understanding of who Jesus is, but a commitment of the will to follow him continually. That's what makes a true disciple. So all of us in Christ, we could be called disciples. We're disciples of the Lord, but we're not apostles. Why do I say that? Well, there were three requirements for apostleship that we see outlined by Peter, the lead apostle, and the early church in the first chapter of Acts, as they're looking to replace Judas as the 12th apostle. And Peter stands up among the 120 brethren and outlines really three things. One, the man needed to be a disciple during the earthly ministry of Jesus. He needed to to see, to be with the Lord himself during his earthly ministry. Number two, he must have been an eyewitness of the resurrection. To actually see the, the Lord raised from the dead, that he might proclaim that truth. And then third, and most importantly, he must be chosen and sent out by the Lord himself. Um... By the way, when they were sent out, they were sent out with power. We see this in Matthew chapter 10. The word that Jesus actually uses when he says they were sent out with power is authority. They were sent out with authority to preach the word of God and to heal miraculously, to heal all manner of sickness and disease. Uh, And so when they spoke Jesus' word, They spoke with his authority. In other words, it was as if Christ himself were speaking. That's the kind of authority that they carried. They were emissaries for the Lord. They were uh, as those who were speaking in his place. And that's why Jesus said, those who receive you, speaking to his apostles, receive me. That means that to reject the word of the apostle is to reject Christ himself. And then, as I mentioned, Jesus also gave them authority to cast out demons and to heal all kinds of sickness and disease. This is why Paul speaks of the, quote-unquote, signs of an apostle in 2 Corinthians, where he says, Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Those are the miracles. They were given to the apostles. Why? To authenticate the message that they had, that they, in fact, were speaking the truth, that they were divine messengers and they should be received as such. And in Acts, we learn that uh, at this time, there were many false prophets who had gone out and they were deceiving many. The uh, Thutis was given as as an example uh, by Gamaliel. Thutis and Judas of Galilee and Simon the sorcerer, they were all deceiving crowds of people and drawing these followings after them. They had set themselves up as something great, claiming to be someone great. And so God gives the true apostles miraculous power to show that they were, in fact, God's messengers and to listen to the message because it's God's message. That's how you know the true from the false. So on these three qualifications of an apostle, 
What's interesting is Paul fails the first two, right? He wasn't part of Christ's earthly ministry, and he wasn't an eyewitness of the resurrection. That's why he says that he was the last to see Jesus as one who was born out of due time. He was converted after Christ had already ascended. He is the last apostle. This is why some have challenged the apostolic authority of Paul, and you see him defending that authority to the Corinthians in particular. But the main requirement for apostleship is the third, that he was commissioned and sent out by the Lord himself. Um, Paul was a chosen vessel of the Lord to bear his name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. That is exactly what the Lord told Ananias about Saul when he was to restore Saul's sight. So the Lord commissioned Saul, and what do we see? Immediately he went out and he preached, Christ is the Son of God. He was a true apostle, and you see him healing too. He healed all kinds of sickness and disease. He cast out demons. Also worth noting that Paul had the direct and visible approval of the other apostles who recognized his apostleship. That's something that modern-day, quote-unquote, apostles, they don't have. It's because the, the office of an apostle has ceased. It's no longer needed. Ephesians chapter 2 has a wonderful insight or gives us a wonderful insight into this. Ephesians chapter 2 in verse 19 Paul says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit." The foundation is the apostles and the prophets. They are the ones to whom the Spirit gave the word of God that they might write Scripture down. The Scripture we have is the the prophets and the apostles. That's the foundation, and they are anchored to the cornerstone who is Christ. And on top of the apostles and prophets are the members of the household of God. That's us. So my point is there's no need to lay another foundation than that which has already been laid. That's why there's no modern-day apostles. That foundation is laid. We have the Word of God. The canon of Scripture is closed. There's no new revelation happening today. One last observation, and that is the order of the words in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. Notice how Paul states that he's called to be an apostle after he first identifies himself as a slave of Jesus Christ. Why does he do that? 1 Corinthians 15, 9, For I and the least of the apostles, Paul says, who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Notice the humility. He didn't feel worthy. Quite the opposite. He had persecuted the church of God. That's why he first calls himself a slave of Christ, then an apostle, and elsewhere the least of the apostles. Apostle is an elevated position. So if he wanted to, he could easily boast in his apostleship, right? But he doesn't. He recognizes the honor is not for himself. 
to speak and to do powerfully for Christ. To make Christ's name great. Like John the Baptist said of Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. May that be true of us, brothers and sisters in Christ. May we use our great calling as saints in Christ to glorify him, to enjoy him forever, as the catechism says. So there we have the first part of the first verse. Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, whose only ambition is to do his master's will and to bring him honor and glory. He was called by the Lord to be his messenger, his sent out one, with the very authority of Christ to herald his one message, which is this, the gospel of God. And that's what we will look at next week, Lord willing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful man, Paul, this brother in Christ that you have saved and redeemed and have worked through mightily to give us scripture, your mind, that we might know you. Father, we confess that we, apart from Christ, are all slaves to sin, sitting in darkness. Darkness in terms of understanding, lacking the true knowledge of God, and darkness morally, that we only choose to do the evil and not the good. But thanks be to God that you have redeemed us. You have set us free. You are the stronger man who dispossesses the strong man armed who keeps his goods in peace in his palace. You, the Lord Jesus Christ, are the conqueror who has authority to cast out demons and to cast out Satan himself from the soul of a man and to fill that man with your Holy Spirit, that he might be sober-minded, that he might think correctly, that he might feel correctly, that he might will to do only what pleases you. Father, we know that we are still in the flesh and we have sin dwelling in us. But Lord, we know that you are mightier. Your grace is greater than all our sin. And Father, you bid us to do the impossible, to follow you and to do, to live in your strength and not our own. Thank you that you are working through your saints. Father, thank you that you are building your church and that not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. We are secure in you. Father, I pray that this would be a fruitful study in your word. Open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law. Help us, Father, to rightly understand what you have for us and keep me from error, Father. Help me, Lord, to rightly divide the word of truth and to remain humble as you bid us all to do. Father, we love you. We thank you for the church of Christ and your spirit who dwells with us. It's in his name we pray, amen.